I'm most relieved when we excuse the kids before the sermon at Easter. I'm actually scanning for children. (laughs) Holy Week is not for the faint of heart. And how do you talk about Easter without talking about Holy Week? How do you talk about and understand the power of this morning's sunrise without talking about the long, hard night, nights that preceded this morning in the story, in, in any story, similar story? And what comes before the empty tomb is pretty rough stuff. We didn't talk about it last week because it was also our Sunday to honor Passover, but in some ways the Easter story very much begins the week before on Palm Sunday. On that day, Jesus, this man who feels this calling to upend all kinds of false hierarchies and pushes the bounds of what it means to live centered in an ethic of love and mutual accountability, who lives With extraordinary compassion and courage, this man enters Jerusalem. And he enters to the ancient equivalent of a ticker tape parade, but he enters knowing what his well-wishers, most of them, do not know, which is what waits for him. He's had a vision of what's to come, and it's so harrowing that he retreats to a garden to pray and asks that the cup be taken from his lips. We all know that kind of a prayer. We've said our own version in moments of fear and overwhelm at what may face us or someone that we love. Please not cancer, please not Alzheimer's, please let the injuries be minor, please let me keep my job, especially now, a thousand prayers for intercession. And sometimes we do get a reprieve, right? But Jesus doesn't. Not Not in this story. And to his credit, he doesn't turn around and run from his fate. He steps into it. Palm Sunday is his stepping forward into it with all those well-wishers welcoming him to a living nightmare. I always felt for him, especially in that moment, the dread, the deep breaths. And the rest of the week includes a Passover Seder with disciples that ends in his betrayal, and the farce of a public trial, and a crowd bloodthirsty and ignorant, and an execution carried out without sparing much emotional or physical cruelty. I never saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, because I don't go to movies where there's torture. I know intimate evil exists, but I cannot bear to watch it. For Gibson and a lot of mainstream Christians like him, Jesus' death was a cosmic ransom paid for our souls. For them, the desire is for all Christians to take that price seriously, as seriously as it deserves to be, to be to be immersed in that call to accountability, to be devoted to this person, this God who paid the price for them. For some you use, that's true too. For most, the story plays out a little differently through time. 
We Unitarian Universalists, especially in more recent decades, have not trucked well with the idea of a God who would send any of God's children to a torturous death or require such a sacrifice in order to forgive the rest of God's children. Our God was a fundamentally loving and compassionate force in the universe and in our own hearts. So none of that fit into this equation, which means that instead the Easter story becomes more of a human story. And the cruelty and the suffering has to have another purpose for us to dignify it with a retelling. I had a professor at Stanford in a class called the Morality of Peace and War, who talked about various kinds of moral reasoning, about the various ways you could engage in making moral decisions. There was utilitarian reasoning where you asked, what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And deontological reasoning, which as I recall, basically asks you to follow the moral rules or laws and sometimes to reason between laws and weigh them if both are appropriate to a given decision. But there was this other form of moral reasoning that I found compelling and the hardest in some ways. He called it erotological a form of reasoning that had its roots in the Greek word arete, for excellence. But excellence in the sense of personal, intimate excellence, like virtue. That's about living a deeper purpose well. And erotological reasoning, as he understood and described it, was this idea that we all have this tender and strong place inside, what I would call soul force, as Gandhi did. And if I were to describe it, it would be the place that draws us to the good and the beautiful and the true, like metal shavings to a magnet or plants pivoting toward the sun. And our job is to grow our relationship to that mystery and that knowing inside of us, and also to avoid wounding that relationship with thoughtless, cruel, degrading actions and choices, to tend to it. And in that framework, Easter becomes a story first of just how evil can show up in the world and how we will have to live and make choices in the face of that reality. Because you can't know the significance of Easter's revelation without looking squarely at the evil that precedes it. How all the forms of human evil are present in this story. There are the people who get caught up in the crowd and are gravely misled in their actions, the soldiers who are just doing their jobs, the king who forgets his humanity and his quest for power and the desire to keep it, even the folks who have stayed away from the events in the square so they won't have to witness what's going on or actively choose whether to risk their lives to protest or prevent it. They're implicated too. And so too is the intimate betrayal by Jesus' disciple because if someone's going to benefit from the wrongdoing, the betrayal, it might as well be him. There's every kind of soul wounding in the story. 
every kind of bad eratological reasoning. Just as this week in Palestine and Israel and so many other places, there was also every kind of soul-wounding choice being made. And Friday, that day in Holy Week, so confusingly called Good Friday, is when we see what it means to make those choices. Jesus dies on the cross. The sky, the story tells us, is rent, leaving one of the bleakest landscapes in human history, literally or figuratively without light. A person who embodied goodness, who was, by all accounts, wise and kind and visionary and courageous, who taught people not to throw the first stone without looking first at their own hearts and brokenness and errors, who taught that if someone needed something from you, you should give them all that you could, who said there was room for everyone at the welcome table to love your neighbor as yourself, but also don't defile the temples of the world, with commerce, know that some things are sacred beyond measure, or you will lose your soul. So much he said and did that was gorgeous and precious, and the world had and still has too little of it. And it was taken away, all of that, in the most cruel and heartless ways. And everyone who was there, or near enough by that they could have done something and didn't, was complicit in the story and how it ends. The way we are all often complicit when evil happens, when it's allowed to. And you and I know that these stories happen all the time, not just in the Bible, right? My best friend's parents lost half of their family in the Holocaust, both of them. Rohit and I, when we traveled to Cambodia years ago, had a guide whose parents, a doctor and a nurse taking care of the world, were killed by Pol Pot and their his siblings, each of them sent to a separate work farm, and they managed to find each other eventually, the oldest restarting as head of the house with traumatized siblings at 17 years old, the head of the house. And so many other stories. These are the moments we see what form evil can take. These are the moments that raise the question, the Good Friday question, why go on? In such a world, why go on? But this is where Easter begins. Growing up, whenever I would get despairing about something in my life, my mom, who's lovely and super kind, would tell me, despair is a good thing. Because, she said, because only when you feel despair sometimes are you willing to do what you have to to change the thing that's breaking your heart or making your life a misery. Despair clarifies the choice point like nothing else. 
Because in a world where you and I are despairing, we are despairing because it looks like evil or hopelessness has triumphed. Because you, like the woman who stood, the women who stood at the base of the cross in the story, simply to witness and be present, powerless but present, because in one of those moments we have lost everything we loved most. And in that moment, it can look like Pontius Pilate and the false leaders of the temple and human depravity have won. And it can look like they crushed a movement and killed a man so sweet he seemed made of different stuff than you and I. And it's the same way life must have looked in all despairing moments through history, or right now in America if you are a child or a parent sending your kid to school in a world that is more in love with their guns than the mental health and safety of our children. Or in an America right now where if you're a woman who needs an abortion for all the reasonable reasons to want freedom and control over your body and your destiny but can't get one. Or in America now, if you are someone born into a body that doesn't feel like the right one for you and every day you're trapped in that body and other people want to trap you in it forever and that makes life unlivable for you. Why go on? These are the moments that Easter speaks to. These are the moments, the hardest ones, when, when we have a story and the choice it reminds us of. To give evil a victory, it's victory to let the grave claim everything we love and hope for and believe in and surrender or or to do, begin to do what we can, which this Easter morning in the story was those Marys, the three of them who are named at the base of the cross, who arrive as soon as they can, as soon as the Sabbath bands are lifted with sunrise to wash and prepare the body of Jesus for proper burial, this act of love and devotion and tenderness and loyalty because it's all they can do to speak of love right now. So they'll do just that. And what they find, whether you believe it literally or as a metaphor, is an empty grave. And two shining figures, the story says, who say that the grave is not the end of the story. And then what they, and later others, find who hit the roads to make sense of life after Jesus is Jesus himself, we're told, on the road with them, body, spirit, whatever, whatever interpretation feels true and real and beautiful to you, it was enough for them. And 2,000 years later, we tell this Easter story because these people, or those they inspired, wrote this story first with their lives and their ministries to the world, and later they wrote it on scrolls and in the hearts of people they shared it with. And sure, Christianity gets led astray in history many times, and it also gives people hope and a moral compass and has for millennia. 
There's a town in Europe that hid and saved hundreds of Jews in the Holocaust, and when asked why they did it, a small town, why did they do it? They said, it's because Jesus said to love your neighbor, and that was enough. The story didn't end at the cross or the tomb. A version of the story began there. So Easter is about evil in part. And I don't ever want to forget that. I hope we don't forget that. And Easter is even more about what living in the face of evil and despair will require of us and how we face it down and lead our own hearts and others into a world that bets on love instead that reaches for connection and justice and toward compassion and mutuality and courage that serves the the love, the good that we love with our lives against all odds some days, some days against all evidence. And we, the Easter people, we choose hope and a new story and sometimes we do whatever we can. One town that needs its children to know they're precious One place to resurrect a dream, one lost cause, we will not surrender at a time. One sunrise, one empty tomb at a time. Because despair is not an option. None of the great stories or great faith traditions or great lives we knew intimately or through history ever chose despair. Easter people, in whatever faith tradition we find them, wherever we find them, Easter people are those who live resurrection. Hope, Emily Dickinson wrote, is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. And the Reverend Molly Hausch Gordon said, the lesson for the women, for the forces of empire, for us in this is you can crush love down, you can bury it, you can cover it over, but it will rise. It will reach for the sun and we will reach for each other even when everything is uncertain, even when we are grieving, even when the loss keeps coming, even when we are forced apart, even when we are bone weary. We keep reaching for each other, we keep rising in love. We know something of that on this maskless Sunday. We know something of this, people of the eighth principle, figuring out how to undo the evil of white supremacy in the wake of so much senseless human violence against black and brown lives. We know something of this, people who will leave today without their coffee, so that we can make room for others to be fed and loved in our space. Because as Amanda Gorman, the young, gorgeous poet we all now know, once wrote, there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. So may we each be the dawn 
of Easter's eternal sunrise in this gorgeous, aching world. That is the reason for bonnets and pastel ties and alleluias, if ever there were one. So happy Easter, everyone. Blessings and a life resurrected from any places it's entombed and a love taking hold of us so big and bold and unstoppable. It resurrects the world around us be ours. Happy Easter, everyone. Amen. Heavenly Parent, please guide my thoughts, words, and deeds as I try to figure all of this out on my own. <laughs> I know you're there for me. I feel you. I need you in my life, and I'm trying to be closer to you. But it's hard. Sunrise, sacrifice, redemption, resurrection, those themes define or describe Easter for me. They always have, and they merge this year in the trifecta of Passover, Ramadan, and Easter. The sacrifices of Lent, well, as a child, my, ne my family never observed sacrifices during Lent. The idea of giving up something, depriving myself of something satisfying or an urge or a desire, that's not really in my tradition, but I appreciate the thought and the effort. Passover with its avoidance of leavened bread is paired this year with Ramadan, during which observers refrain from life-giving food and water during daylight hours. They're both attempts to remind us of the holy in our lives by suggesting sacrifice recognizing hunger and thirst, then celebrating community by coming together again in joyous special meals after the day's rituals have concluded. In all three traditions, I see common things like reflection, fasting, avoiding certain foods, acts of charity, special prayers. They all resonate with me. These traditions remind me of just how human I am and how much I need connection. I need to breathe common air, feel another person's presence while relishing, remembering, and sometimes enduring common practice. It may not be pretty, neat, or easy, but my need for community is baked into me. It's why I'm here today. Common rituals, things we do together, They've always had meaning for me because they exist. They're revered, repeated, even without understanding, and sometimes only the remotest connection to what they meant to someone else. And I'm okay with that. I really am. A few years ago, I got my first ashes on Ash Wednesday. Not being Catholic, I, I wondered for a minute if I should. But as I contemplated the act, I recognized and appreciated the longing I had for the presence of the sacred in that act, sublimating my own desires, thoughts, and needs to that moment when a priest, someone who has dedicated their lives to the sacred, put their soot smudged thumb on my forehead and ushered a, uttered a blessing. As I wondered if they could tell or even cared that I wasn't Catholic, I only wished it meant more to me or was somehow more transformational.
I remember appreciating the moment for what it was, a tangible expression of my search for meaning and the sacred in my life. I also remember it for what it was not, a magical transformational moment. So I experience resurrection's power today as a challenge to live my full life, to walk humbly with my fellow travelers, to remember that I'm a small cog in a very large and overreaching organism, and that small though I may be, I play a role no one else can. Sunrise, sacrifice, redemption and resurrection, those are the Easter themes for me, but I've seen too much, I've walked too far, and grown too wise to force myself, comfort myself, or limit myself to the visions that floated around me in my youth. This is to me the power of resurrection, and as I enter into it more deeply, I'm called to new visions and new ways of living and praying over and over again. <laughs>